Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Joshua, chapter 11, and verse 1. Joshua 11, 1, for our message from God's Word this morning. Joshua 11, 1 will be found on page 271. If you're using the church Bible. This morning's date is April 3rd, 2022. Opening week for Major League Baseball. So I have my White Sox tie on. Check it out later. (laughs) Our text this morning is going to be in Joshua 11. Verses 1 through 23 at the end of the chapter. And the title of this morning's message is The Last Stand of the Canaanites. The Last Stand of the Canaanites. And we begin with a story about Custer's Last Stand. It seems that after he died at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, his wife wanted his tombstone to have a picture on it that illustrated his last words. So she asked the only survivor of the battle to make his tombstone. She felt sure that his last words would have been about his love for her or maybe his love for his country. But when she saw the tombstone at the funeral, she asked the man who engraved it, how come you put a picture of some Native American warriors on the headstone along with a picture of a cow with a halo around his head. And he said it's because General Custer's last words were, holy cow, look at all those Indians. (laughs) Well... In our studies in the book of Joshua, we have seen Joshua fight several battles against those Canaanite nations who had no business occupying the land that God had promised the people of Israel. And here in Joshua chapter 11... The nations that remained in the promised land are going to decide to band together for one final battle against the people of Israel. A battle that ended up being the last stand of the Canaanites. And the story begins in verses 1 through 5 where we read these words. And it came to pass 
When Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard those things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madden, and the king of Shimron, and the king of Ashik, and the kings that were on the north of the mountains, and of the plains south of Chinneroth, and in the valley, and in the borders of Dor on the west, and the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and all the other rites, in the mountains, and to the Hivite under Hermon, where Hermon's hermits live. How many remember Hermon's hermits? Raise your hand. There you go. Uh, to the Hivite under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And all those kings went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots very many. And when all those kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Now to begin with, back in verse 1 there, I should point out that the things that the king heard were the things about how Joshua had conquered Jericho and Ai and five other Canaanite nations as we've been studying. Hearing all of that just scared the dickens out of him because he knew that the Jews were not going to stop advancing into the land of Canaan just because they conquered a few nations. He knew that God had promised all the land of Canaan to the people of Israel. Everybody in the world knew it because, as I've mentioned a few times, copies of the Word of God that said it had been circulated throughout the world. So, King Jabin knew it was just a matter of time until Joshua got around to attacking him. So, as we've seen here, he sent a message to these other kings to join him for a final showdown. And those kings must have been just as terrified as him because, as it says there, they all showed up to fight against the people of Israel. But, in verse 4 there, if it sounds familiar to you to hear about a group of God's enemies who were as numerous as the sand on the seashore, it's because the Canaanites' last stand here is a type of the last stand that the people of the whole 
world are going to make at the battle of Gog and Magog. Now, if you're not familiar with that battle, it's the one that's going to be fought a thousand years after the battle of Armageddon, as you see in your first two cross-references. The first one in Revelation 19, 19 and 20 talks about Armageddon. John is seeing visions of the tribulation period and he said, I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth gathered to make war against him that sat on the horse. And it's talking about the Lord Jesus. And the beast was cast alive into the lake of fire. And that's the end of the Antichrist. But it's not the end of the devil. Because in the very next chapter, in your very next reference, in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, it says, And an angel laid hold on Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, the pit of hell. You've told, I've told you many times that hell is a pit in the heart of earth, the earth like a peach pit. It's round. And round things don't have a bottom. So Satan is cast into the pit of hell as the verse goes on to say, that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. Now, that thousand years is what we call the millennial kingdom, the beginning of the kingdom of heaven on earth, with no devil to bother anybody for a thousand years. How do you like them apples? But then, then this happens in Revelation 20 verses 7 to 9. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. And watch this. The number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's the final showdown between God and his people. Satan and his people. It's the last stand of the unsaved people of the whole world, folks. But in that last reference there, don't skip over that part about Satan gathering God's enemies from the four quarters of the earth. Because you know what the four quarters of the earth are? Uh, in your next reference, in describing Solomon's temple, it says in First Chronicles 9.24, in four quarters were the porters. Hey, that rhymes. <laughs> Toward the east, the west, the north, and the south. 
So the four quarters of the earth are the four directions of the earth, right? And back here in Joshua 11, when we read those first few verses, did you notice that that's where Jabin gathered these enemies of God from? Let me read verses 1 to 3 again. Came to pass when Jabin king of Hazor heard these things that he sent to Jobab king of Madden and to the king of Shimron and the king of Asheth and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains and of the plains south of Chinneroth and in the valley and in the borders of Dor on the west and to the Canaanite on the east and on the west. So you get the idea that Jabin is gathering an army from the four quarters of the land of Canaan that is as numerous as the sand of the sea. That makes Jabin a type of the devil himself. And it makes this upcoming battle a type of the battle of Gog and Magog. Now, I know that I've been telling you that the battles here in Joshua were types of the the mop-up battles that are going to come after Armageddon, but before the millennial kingdom. And here in Joshua 11, the type is jumping over the millennium. But there's a reason for that. The reason is that nobody in the Old Testament knew that the first thousand years of the kingdom were going to be any different than the rest of the kingdom. That wasn't revealed till you get to the New Testament, so you don't see it pictured in the types here in the Old Testament. Now, if you were Joshua and you saw armies coming from the north and the south and the east and the west coming together to fight against you, you'd probably have to go home and change your underwear because you would be flat out terrified. And God knew that Joshua probably was too. So in verse 6, back in your Bible now, it says, The Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Thou shalt hock their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now that word hock there just means to hamstring somebody, to, to make them powerless. There's no, there was no need for uh, the people of Israel to kill their horses. <laughs> so God just told Joshua to hock them, to hamstring them. But there was a need to burn their chariots because this is a type of Gog and Magog when fire is going to come down and devour God's enemies. And that fire 
when it comes down at the battle of Gog and Magog, is going to come down in a moment of time, like we just read. Fire came down and devoured them. Just like we're seeing pictured here when God tells Joshua in verse 6, tomorrow about this time I'll deliver up all those armies that are as numerous as the sand of the sea. Well, if I heard an assurance like that coming from the lips of God Almighty... Even I'd be willing to attack those armies. And Joshua was too, as we see in verse 7. So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Miram suddenly. And they fell upon them. Joshua came upon them suddenly because that's how that fire is going to come down from heaven at Gog and Magog. Suddenly, in a moment of time. All right, let's read the next three verses, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto great Zidon and unto that place and unto the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they smote them until they left none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. Always good to follow God's instructions in any dispensation. He hocked their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. Now, don't forget, Hazor was where Jabin was king, just like we read in verse 1. And Jabin was a type of Satan. So, it's not surprising there in verse 10 to read that Hazor, Jabin's kingdom, was the head of all those kingdoms. Because, folks, Satan's kingdom is the head of the kingdoms of all the world. People wonder why the world is such a messed up place. Well, just look at who the king of the world is. Don't don't be blaming God for the condition of the world, folks. Blame the guy that... Paul talks about in your next reference there in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan. He's the head of the kingdoms of the world. But someday he's going to get what's coming to him at his last stand, the battle of Gog and Magog. Verse 11 says, And they smote all the souls that were in Hazor with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe. And he burnt Hazor with fire. Now, destroying all that breathed sounds to me like what's going to happen when that fire comes down from heaven at Gog and Magog? That'll take care of everybody breathing, right? But as we read on, we see that 
Joshua didn't stop with crushing the kingdom of the head honcho. <laughs> Verse 12 says, And all the cities of those kings, and all the kings of them did Joshua take, and smote him with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. But, as for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them, save Hazor only, that did Joshua burn. Now in verse 13, those cities that stood still, those were cities that were still standing after Joshua killed all the people in those cities. If, uh, if a city was, was still standing after it had been conquered, they didn't burn it down. Because God had told people in your next reference in Deuteronomy 6, 10-12, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. Then when that happens, beware that you don't forget about the Lord. God promised the people of Israel they would live in the cities that they conquered if they were still standing after they conquered them. Otherwise they had to burn them down. The cities that were reduced to rubble after they conquered it, well, well, they had to burn them, folks. I mean, God didn't want his people living in a promised land filled with ghost towns, right? But listen, the cities that were still standing were part of the inheritance that God promised them. As you see in your next reference in Psalm 105, 42 and 44. Speaking of God, it says he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant and gave them the lands of the heathen and they inherited the labor of those heathen people. Folks, it took a lot of labor to build that Sears Tower downtown. But someday... Someday Jewish believers are going to be living in the penthouse suite of that building down there. Psalm 37 verse 11 says, When that happens, the meek will inherit not just the seers, they are the earth. And when the Jews inherited the promised land, back here in the book of Joshua, that was just a type of how someday they're going to inherit the entire planet. While you and I are going to be inheriting the heavens after the rapture. Now, here in Joshua 11, the Jews also inherited some livestock, as we see in verse 14 as we read on. 
and all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves but every man they smote the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them neither left they any to breathe so the Lord or as the Lord commanded Moses his servant so did Moses command Joshua and so did Joshua he left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses so Joshua took all that land the hills and all the south country and all the land of Goshen and the valley and the plain and the mountain of Israel and the valley of the same even from the Mount Halleck that goeth up to Seir even unto Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon under Mount Hermon and all their kings he took and smote them and slew them and then in verse 18 it says Joshua made war a long time with those kings now here he's summing up all the battles that we read about in the book of Joshua folks not not just this final battle that ended suddenly and you know that because of what it says in the next verse in verse 19 there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel save the Hivites the inhabitants of Gibeon all other they took in battle do you see how that's looking back at all the nations that the Jews conquered and that one nation of Gibeon that tricked them into making a peace treaty with them but as we read on in verse 20 you're going to see a verse that you might find a little troubling and a little disturbing verse 20 it says for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle that he might destroy them utterly and that they might have no favor but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses now you look at that and you say well that makes it sound like the Canaanites were all a bunch of soft hearted people and God snuck up on them reached into their chest grabbed their heart and hardened it so he would have an excuse to wipe them out like the big bully that he is (laughs) right but you know that's not what happened you know that because that's not what happened the first time that God hardened somebody's heart in your next reference when the Jews were still slaves in Egypt God told Moses in Exodus 4.21 you see that you do all these wonders all these miracles before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand I've given you the power to do them but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go God told Moses go and show Pharaoh some miracles and tell him to let Israel go 
But when you do, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't let you go. And I'll have no choice but to drown his sorry behind in the Red Sea. Him and the horse whom he he rode in on. Isn't that an expression? (laughs) Now listen, it was true that God was looking for an excuse to drown Pharaoh. Because God had told Pharaoh in Exodus 9 and verse 16, For this cause have I raised thee up, to show in thee my power, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. You know, Pharaoh thought what all kings thought. (laughs) They all think that they got to be king because they were just so doggone smart. But God tells Pharaoh that he raised him up and made him the greatest king on the planet so that when he ripped Israel away from the greatest king on the planet, it showed his power in Pharaoh. So, it's true. God was itching for a way to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let Israel go. I mean, if he just let them go without a fight, God couldn't show his power in them, right? But here's the thing. The way that God hardened his heart is described when... God went on to say to to Moses in Exodus 4, 21-23, I'll harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. And here's how it's going to work. Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto you, Let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. God told Pharaoh, you let my son Israel go, and if you don't, I'll kill your son. Now, if you know anything about human nature, you know that is no way to talk to a man who is the greatest king on the planet if you want him to do what you're asking him to do. But that's just it. God didn't want him to do what he was asking him to do. He didn't want him to let Israel go. He wanted him to refuse to let him go. So he told Moses to talk to Pharaoh in a way that was guaranteed to tick him off and rouse up his pride. And it worked. As you see in Exodus 8.15, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart when Moses talked to him like that. And that's how God hardened his heart, folks. Now i got a question for you. Is there anything unfair about that? Pharaoh could have softened his heart and did what Moses was asking, right? So whose fault was it when he didn't? Hey folks, it's not God's fault that Pharaoh sleeps with the fishes 
as they said in the Godfather. But here in Joshua 11, God's power has already been known throughout the world. They're all afraid of Him. So here in Joshua 11, God hardened the hearts of these nations for a different reason. He wanted that demonic seed of those gi- of the fallen angels, those giants, he wanted that seed wiped out. So he hardened their hearts so they would attack Israel to get them wiped out. But this time, God hardened the hearts of the kings of those nations differently than he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the best way to describe how he did it is to compare uh, your next reference and how God hardened the heart of another king. Back when the Jews were in the wilderness making their way to the promised land, they came to the land of a king named Sihon and they needed to pass through his land to get to the promised land. So Moses did what he what it says there in Deuteronomy 2 26 to 30. Moses said looking back on what happened he said I sent messengers out of the wilderness unto Sion king of Heshbon with words of peace. Instead of threatening your son to kill your son, he sent him words of peace, saying, Let me pass through thy land. Let me and Israel pass through your land. But Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. Why not? For the Lord thy God had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand, into the hand of the Jews to kill him. Well, those verses say that God hardened the heart of the king of Sion, King Sion, I should say, so that he wouldn't let Israel pass through just to give God an excuse to have the Jews kill him, right? But how did he do it? How did God harden a king's heart this time? Well, as you compare Scripture with Scripture, in your next reference we find out how. In Numbers 21, 21, and 22, Israel sent messengers unto Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through thy land. We will not turn into the fields or into the vineyards, we will not drink of the waters of the well until we get past your borders. Moses told King Sihon, as we pass through your land, we won't eat the crops in your field, we won't eat the fruit in your vineyards, shucks, we're not even going to drink out of your well. Now, Let me ask you, is that the most respectful and deferential way you ever heard anybody talk to a king? Yeah. 
So how come he didn't let Israel pass through? Well, it says in Judges 11, verses 20 and 21, But Sion trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Sion gathered all his people together and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the land of Israel, and they smote them. Sion didn't believe the Jews when they said that all they wanted to do was pass through his land. He figured it was a trick, and the Jews wanted to take his land. (laughs) So he hardened his own heart and said, Nothing doing, no way, Jose. You ain't passing through my land. But folks, Moses was telling the truth. They were just passing through the land. But Sion didn't want to believe the truth, so he ended up taking a dirt nap on the wrong side of the grass, as we say. And folks, that is how God hardened the heart of these Canaanite nations. He just told them the truth that the land of Canaan belonged to God and His people and He was taking possession of it. Now hearing that, they could have just backed away and gone and lived someplace else. But hearing the truth made them harden their own hearts. And that's a type of what's going to happen in the Millennial Kingdom, folks. In the Millennial Kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne of the earth in Jerusalem for a thousand years telling the world that the world belongs to Him. That He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the unbelievers of the world, they're not going to want to hear that truth. So they're going to harden their own hearts and gather together to fight against God at the end of the Millennial Kingdom in the battle of Gog and Magog and die because they hardened their hearts. You know, when God spoke to Pharaoh like a bully and then spoke respectfully to Sion that reminds me of something that the Lord said about the generation that was supposed to live to see the battle of Gog and Magog in Matthew 11 16-19 the Lord said whereunto shall I liken this generation It's like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Lord? Well, he goes on to explain it. Speaking of John the Baptist... For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they said about him, Wow, he's got a devil. (laughs) But 
the son of man came eating and drinking and they say ah oh, behold a man gluttonous and a wine bibber a friend of publicans and, and sinners the, the Lord told that generation in Israel God sent John the Baptist to act all stern and mean and you refused him and then God sent me and I and he spoke nicely to you through me. I was here healing people. And you refused me too. You know, that's just another example of what we've seen this morning. How God always bends over backwards before he starts judging people. So don't feel sorry for him when you read about as we've seen in several times in this passage and in the scripture reading in uh, Joshua 10 that Tracy read that God just wiped him out, wiped him out, all that breathed. When you read verses like 1 Samuel 15.3 Thus saith the Lord, Smite Amalek and utterly destroy infant and sucklings. When you hear God say, up the babies and grab the old ladies even the babies and they're going to die well you know what that is that's just an example of God taking an eye for an eye like he says in the law because look what it says in Psalm 137 8 and 9 O daughter of Babylon happy shall he be watch now that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones like you rewarded us. We've talked in these messages about how God's punishments are always exactly equal to the crime. And that's something I, I've been wanting to point out as we went through this book and saw these verses about God wiping them all out. This is the first time I've had a chance to. All the other messages were packed with other things. Alright, verses 21 and 22 back in your Bible now. And at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains. From Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, uh, only in Gaza, over there by the Gaza Strip, in Gath, and in Ashdod, well, there remained a few Anakims there. And don't forget, Anakims was just another name for those giants. You see that in Numbers 13.33. The spies came back to Moses and said, The giants, the sons of Anak, the Anakims, which come of the giants, are in the promised land. And as it says there in verse 22 in your Bible, there was none of those Anakins, none of those giants left in Israel. The Jews finally succeeded in driving the giants out of their land. But 
Verse 22 there says they did not succeed in what God wanted them to do, exterminate those giants. There was still some of them in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, that explains what you read in 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of what city? Gath! Whose height was six cubits in a span. The giants were getting shorter. Earlier they were 13 feet tall. He's only about nine feet. Only about nine feet tall. <laughs> uh, well, Gath is one of the cities where the Anakim still lived, it said there, right? Now, later on, the Jews did succeed in wiping them all out. And you see part of that genocide in 2 Samuel 21, 16-22. Uh, Ishbenabab, say that three times real fast. Ishbenabab of the sons of the giant plotted to kill David, thought to have slain David. But Abishai smote that Philistine and killed him. One less giant. Then Sibachai slew Seth, which was of the sons of the giant. And a Jew named Elhanan slew the brother of Goliath. Another giant. And there was yet... A, and by the way, did you have... Go home and read the story of David and Goliath. Ever wonder why he picked five stones to go to meet Goliath? He knew Goliath had four brothers. <laughs> he was ready. But they all ran, if you know the story. Anyway, I'm in a uh, Elhanan slew the brother of Goliath, and there was yet a battle in Gath where was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes. And he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of King Saul, slew him. So, God used the people of Israel to kill them all off, as it says in your next reference, Amos 2.9. Yet I destroyed the Amorite, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. They, he wasn't a nine-foot beanpole. He was broad in the shoulders. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. God made sure they all died from root to fruit. So you're not going to find any of their grandkids working as greeters down at Walmart or any place else where you go, right? Alright, last verse, verse 23. So, Joshua took all, took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. And look at those last words. And the land rested from war. Now, when it says the land rested from war 
after this battle that typified the battle of Gog and Magog, that's a picture of how things are going to be on earth after the battle of Gog and Magog, as Isaiah tells you in Isaiah 2, 2 and 4. It'll come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established in the top of the mountains. And he shall judge among the nations and they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Take their weapons and make them farm implements. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Folks, in that day the whole world's going to rest from war. As you're seeing pictured here in this type. And you know what? Whenever Jews would read verses like that, it gave them unfathomable peace. Like it says in your last reference there in Psalm 46 verses 9 and 10. Speaking of God, it says, He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. That sound like peace over no war over the whole earth? He breaketh the bow, cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the heathen. I'll be exalted in the earth. You know why that verse brings such peace to Jews? Folks, the people of Israel have been kicked around on this planet for 4,000 years. And the only thing that stilled their hearts during those 4,000 years, the only thing that gave many peace during all that time, was prophecies like that assuring them that someday they'd have peace. The world would have peace. And you know what? As life kicks you around, the only peace that you're going to find is found in knowing that it's not going to last forever. Someday the Lord's going to rapture you home to be with Him in heaven and all your troubles are going to be over. You just got to stop fretting about now and start thinking about then. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the peace that we can have knowing what's going to happen to this planet and knowing what's going to happen to us. We understand, Father, that compared to eternity, life is just a one-night stand. And that we're never going to have peace in this world. It's always going to be one thing after another. It's always going to be one problem after another. If we want to be still and know that you're God, the only way it's going to happen, the only peace we're going to find is looking to that day. As the Apostle Paul said, looking at the things which are not seen. 
Because the things which are seen are temporary. It's only the things that your word tells us about that are not seen that are eternal. Give us a focus on that today, we pray in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen.